Yesterday he told us that uh, the work they do costs a million pounds a year. And I know that uh, overnight you were feverishly thinking about how we could raise that kind of funding. Um, hopefully today we'll be spending some more money uh, and figuring out exactly the process of innovation because, uh, you know, very often I think we overcomplicate things when we think about uh, innovation and, and the way that it works. Um, he gets to do it all the time. Please help me welcome George Wright from the BBC. Hello. Thanks very much, everyone. Thanks for having me back for a second day, and the weather's getting better. Not looking forward to going back to Britain, I have to say. Um, yeah, so uh, was everyone here yesterday, roughly? I'm just trying to work out if I need to give any intro. Right, so BBC R&D, we help uh, create the future. Um, in terms of cost, yes, we cost uh, a fixed amount of money. Uh, generally speaking, uh, it's a given that an R&D a, a, a non-R&D company should spend 1% of its income on R&D. So Apple spends 15% of its income on R&D, uh, Google about 20%, even allowing some of their amusing tax breaks where they put things that aren't R&D into their R&D bucket because you get taxed. That's still a colossal amount of money. So Google spends more on R&D than the entire cost of the BBC every year. And the BBC costs uh, 4.5 4 billion pounds. Uh, which at the moment is probably about two grand, uh, with the way our exchanges. Uh, <coughs> so uh, we we have a licence fee model where you pay to receive TV programmes in the UK if you have a TV. Therefore, we can't make any more money, short of encouraging uh, population boom, uh, or encouraging people who don't watch TV to watch TV by making better programmes. We have a fixed sum of money. We don't make any more money from what we do. We're a non-profit. Uh, we are probably the world's biggest company that's a significant player on the internet that isn't out to make money. We don't have shareholders, we have citizens. So that's just a little kind of bit of why we do R&D is because um, the future is made by those who make it. There is a view sometimes within the BBC as well uh, that it's finished, that high-definition TV, stereo and a, and a website are all we need. But talking to colleagues, in our, and our history within R&D goes back 70 or 80 years, talking to colleagues, they are much older than me, they laughed and said, oh yeah, they said that about colour TV. But when colour TV was invented, there was a view that says, right, well, okay, we can all, we can all go home now. Um, so we don't think that. Uh, we think that there is a space for a public internet, uh, that, that broadcasting owned by the people is something that's important to preserve in an age of an internet that was created by the people. The internet was created by public service money, by academics and, and researchers. And we don't think its end goal is to serve you cat videos surrounded by dating ads. So um, that's kind of why we do what we do. We're here to support our production colleagues. We're here uh, both in the BBC and outside. There is a community of broadcasters, so SABC, is one of them. Uh, we work with public broadcasters around the world as well as commercial broadcasters around the world. And one of the reasons we do that is because... Are there any technology vendors here? Um, software tech... Hardware technology vendors have an amusing um, way of taking some commodity kit, adding a zero on the end of it, adding a little thing that says broadcast ready, and then charging you ten times as much money. Um, and that was how broadcast kit used to be and then standardization has driven the cost of broadcast kit down and down and down. 
to the point that it's possible to get stuff that's better than you used to get production 10 years ago in your local electronics shop for about a hundredth of the cost. So taking that a bit further, when we see a, a relatively standard mid, mid, low to mid-range Android phone, the camera, the video camera, the microphones on that are better than we were using in the field 10 years ago. Um, now, is the user trained in using it? Do they know about how to point? And that's different. The standardization has helped drive down cost, and we want to continue that approach. As the internet offers us a load of opportunities, we don't think those opportunities are best served by buying a massive license to run what's normally open source software with a badge and a sticker on the top. So, you know, I've got nine ways I could have chosen one and gone in huge depth, or I could have chosen a hundred and gone into much less depth. Nine things that we are either working with, working on, or, or use that uh, are primarily focused around audio and radio technologies, which save costs, speed up production, get us closer to the listener, or go where they're going to be. Because, you know, in my lifetime, there were three channels in the UK. And when the third one, when the commercial one was launched, the commercial sector gave the BBC 10 years' notice. They wrote, they wrote to the government, I mean, it was a tender process, but simplifying it, there was 10 years before commercial TV was coming along. Um, it, it, it's, it's not that long since the BBC lobbied against car radios, the, the way that you used to be able to tune a car radio manually like that, <laughs> lobbied against that technology being in use in the home because it would encourage people to switch away from their radio stations, which then were very, very difficult to tune into. So once we had people tuned to a station, we wanted them to stay on it. We didn't want to encourage them to tune away. That's all gone now. I mean, that literally feels like a million years away. The competition comes, you know, it can be, a new service can be pitched, bought, shut down, and, you know, all of its staff, millionaires, in, 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 in 12 months now. Um, and, and that's a good thing because that sort of competition drives us to do, to do more stuff. Um, it means that we can't look inwards. The broadcasting industry has traditionally been very inwards looking. I remember going to the IBC with the International Broadcasting Convention, which is in the Rye in Amsterdam, about 10 years ago, and there was you know, rooms and rooms of HDMI cables and you know, rooms and rooms of satellite trucks. And the internet, bit, the internet bit was in the bit that they used to give to uh, the local students' art exhibition. Um, and, and, and it, you know, there is still, if you want to buy a million HDMI cables, go to um, um, the IBC. But also, increasingly, if you want to see uh, the pinnacle of kind of uh, audio and, and video technology is increasingly using the internet, and, and, and it does so um, for cost savings, for, for ease of use, and for replication. You can scale quickly. And the same sort of ability to scale quickly that startups use, big broadcasters like the BBC we're using. So a caveat, none of these here are ready for prime time yet. Because in all honesty, if they were, I wouldn't be that interested in them and I wouldn't be showing them to you. Mm. So if you want shrink wrap stuff, it's not me. Um, many of them are open source. That means that they're under your or our control, not vendors. That's, we're not dogmatic about open source and free software. I mean, there's some, there's some practicalities it brings us, which is why we keep using it. And it's why we build on it. So a lot of the stuff we do, we build on so that other people can make use of it. Um, so, I mean, really the big one for us and the one that um, ha made some of the traditional um, hardware people within the BBC sit up and listen was web audio. So, um, uh, four or five years ago, there was quite a lot of breakthroughs in, in video on the web, replacing Flash um, with, 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 with open video. 
Um, and Flash is a horrible thing that deserves to be locked in a box and thrown off a cliff. And thankfully, Adobe, who made Flash, recognized that. So um, the nice thing about the web is that when it looked like the web was beginning to take audio seriously, so Tim Berners-Lee is the, the inventor of the World Wide Web. Um, some people in my team used to work for, for, for him. Um, and when it looked like they were, the web was beginning to take web audio seriously, um, we helped set up a working group for um, uh, web audio to do native audio in a browser. So this here um, is an example of an open uh, digital audio workstation rendered entirely in a browser um, with broadcast quality, end-to-end, -end, the, the kind of server you'd need to run that, uh, any, any basic five bucks a month, um, four quid a month server would give you the, the, the grunts to do that. You can then do professional quality audio editing um, with no plug-in needed, and you can send it to listeners, you can mix audio, you can get it to play out, and much more. And because it's open, if you want to make changes to it, you can grab the code yourself, you can grab the browser yourself, and you can dig in. If you want to take you know, a more kind of strategic input, getting involved in the web standards um, and, and, and helping is relatively straightforward. And to give you an example of what we did there, when this, when this came along, there were two competing standards for doing audio in, in a web browser. There was one from um, Google who made Chrome, and there was one from um, Mozilla who made Firefox. And so the BBC and my team, we, 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 we decided to help test these two standards out, and we went back to um, some of the, the, the work that the BBC did um, in the 50s and 60s with the Radiophonic Workshop, which was a pioneering electronic music um, kind of creation group within the BBC, and we took a load of these sound principles and applied them to the web to test the uh, print, to test the, the, these two competing standards. And it also meant that instead of the relatively boring, usual sort of test tone, one, two, three kind of stuff, or stereo tracking, we did it with the sound from the Radiophonic Workshop, which is pretty mad, sort of Doctor Who theme song sort of stuff, kind of pew, and kind of explosions and um, uh, wobulators and TARDIS noises. So we made quite a dry topic, which is which web audio standard is the best. We made real things out of it, put them in front of end users, and eventually the two competing standards came together uh, with the best of both, roughly. A little bit of politics and that sort of shenanigans, but as a result now, you know, professional quality audio in your browser for free, something that would have cost you no idea how much to buy uh, a digital audio workstation and the, the PC you'd need to do it and the, the back end you need to ingest it. And so increasingly we're seeing students come to us who basically built their own studio in their bedroom that's as good as or sometimes better than we've got in production and they're, they're learning the principles of how to make radio for real, not with some locked off little thing where you need a dongle and it runs out after three weeks and you can only save ten times or all of this stuff. It, 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 it democratized you know, radio production to the point that anyone can literally do it now. Does that mean they make good radio? No. But you know, does that mean the BBC always makes good radio with its fantastic kit? No. You know, computers can never replace human creativity. And a lot of the stuff I'm showing today is where it, it augments it and it allows the humans to do the stuff that they're good at. Um, so speech to text, I touched on this a little bit yesterday with our, with our World Service stuff, but um, we've, we've built a, a system in conjunction with a radio indie called Something Else and a kind of software company called Kite, which basically uses the... So for us, the cloud is, is, is a synonym for a computer that you don't control. Right? So um, putting things in the cloud is used a lot, and it actually means you're giving it to someone else to do something with. And a lot of the time, it's very good, sharing files and so on. Um, but we, with this, we built something in the cloud. 
with an open source system that other people can roll out if they want, or if they want to use this system, they can, um, to run massive amounts of, of, of audio through, through this system, to find meanings in the, uh, in the audio, to reduce duplication. If you've got three, three takes of the same um, um, interview on your scratch bin, we can find those and, and say, well, this one, we think this one's the better, this one's the least noisy, or this one's got more in it. Scanning vast archives, like the thing I showed yesterday with the World Service Archive, or also search for hidden gems. So with that, what we can do is we can say, okay, we've got, um, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000 audio files in here, um, no metadata. One of them is the program that we want to repeat tomorrow. And it will not come back and say, this is the one you want to repeat tomorrow. It will say, of these 2,000, four of them, we think, are about this following topic. And so with that, we can then pipe that into the to, 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 to actual professional kind of researchers, radio researchers, to say, we think it's these four. Is this, is this the program we're looking for? Um, and then the reverse of that, so text-to-speech. So um, both speech-to-text and text-to-speech, they they're obviously the reverse ends of the same chain. They're totally different um, technologies, but both have come on in leaps and bounds in about the past five years. So the BBC is rolling out services increasingly around the world. We had a little blip where the World Service, which was our ex uh, externally facing stuff, um, uh, uh, lost government funding, came into the main bulk of the BBC. Um, the government has since realised we're not part of the government, we're funded by the licence fee, we're not part of the government, but the World Service is funded by the government, um, is going to be increasingly funded to reach more people. So as part of that we want to do new language services, um, what we're beginning to be able to do is to scale up quite quickly with automatic translation for stuff that um, is breaking too quickly for us to put kind of human translators on it or for us to experiment in areas where we might say, oh, we think we can create a basic service for country X or language Y. This tool is actually getting there now to the point that when we put it in front of, I have to say, very, very sceptical human translators. Very, very. We're not doing them out of the job. We're trying to allow them to do their job better. They are amazed and surprised that actually this is about 80 to 85 percent right, which a lot of translators, the idea that they're 100 percent right now, especially in some specific topic areas where they might be a fluent, whatever, Japanese speaker, but they know nothing at all about medical technology. So they have to go and research it, they have to go and look it up, so they're not 100 percent. So getting to 80 to 85 percent right in some areas is a big breakthrough. So what this could mean is you could take something where you've got a package and you want to get it into another language. It means you could sell, conceivably sell your package by automatically translating it into another language to get it in front of someone who might buy it, who might say, actually, this is a good package, but we need to get a human to do some of the bits where it's a bit unclear. So this for us now is in use. We're rolling out language services using it. This is something that was kind of created in R&D and is in use in the field now. So WebRTC. So uh, this means uh, uh, real-time control, um, real-time comms, real-time communication. And it is the ability to shift audio and video, audio's a lot easier because of bandwidth and so on, around the open internet in the field. So here you might have uh, someone um, uh, in Libya who is attempting to do a two-way back to London to be broadcast. And they can do it with any Android device, many iPhones. iPhones are a bit tricky with some of this HTML5 stuff. Um, we can do uh, a two-way with someone else. 
completely on another continent using commodity devices that cost 50 US dollars each with a 3G connection um, over the open internet to um, a control room in London or anywhere else uh, and we don't have to book satellite lines, we don't have to give them expensive laptops that get stolen. Um, a lot in, in, a lot, in a lot of areas where it's unsafe to report, we, we just take three phones and they've got one on them, it will get lost, stolen or, or break. There's another one, um, it's built in redundancy and um, it's as easy to use as any normal um, contribution network is. So WebRTC, think of it as Skype, but without the awful software, the, uh, all the buffering, uh, the ads, the contact spam, the a whole lot of other things that make Skype a joy to use. Um, but, but also, it's built for production use. So WebRTC, I mean, there are a whole load of enthusiasts using it to kind of do their video calls with their friends, you know, but it, it, it's turnkey with, with, with a lot of play-out systems now. Um, it's, it's, it's there. Uh, WebRTC as a way of getting your audio and video from the field to the mixing desk and then out there to the, to the, to the, to the listener is, it's, it's, is ready. Still glitchy. It will get better. Again, it's open source and no one owns it and no one controls it. Um, virtual reality. So um, this is an example of an area where having an R&D department really pays off because about two years ago, um, virtual reality VR was a sort of buzzword that there was some interesting stuff happening in it. And a lot of it was based around um, kind of 30 years of academic work into virtual reality in 360. So just like when the web came along, and there was a whole load of hypertext people who'd been doing hypertext for 30 years before, and then the web came along, and it was sort of most of what hypertext was promised, but it was there and it worked and it was real, and a lot of the academics' work could be used, and, 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 and there was a lot of um, kind of benefit in having this academic stuff. It was when it became real that a lot of the theories were proven or disproven. And so we took a decision about two years ago, my team, to go and basically play with VR, and at the time, the kit was about, about £5,000 for a headset. It was about £10,000 to do the, the, the stuff on. And it was a bit of an experiment, but that's what we are about. And what was, we were pretty lucky because we were in at the right point where the kit started plunging in price. Um, and then, importantly, consumers, viewers and listeners, the, 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 the headsets and stuff that you need for it also became plunging in price. And so we made quite a lot of um, strides quite quickly. So we were nominated for a Tribeca. Um, we, we, we sent some people to, to, to film in, in, in Calais, um, in, 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 in one of the, the, the jungles, and, and it so happened that on that day a news story broke from there. So our kind of R&D people with their scratchy stuff that was supposed to be doing this uh, kind of um, R&D experiment ended up doing two ways back to London and being on the 10 o'clock new <coughs> news, which actually meant they didn't do much VR that day. Um, but it showed uh, that... Uh, when we kind of finished the VR, it showed that you could take these relatively academic things, these headsets and stuff, and make really immersive experiences which make people cry. They're so... Um, uh, you, you're in there. Why am I saying this at a radio and audio conference? Because, A, audio was always neglected in VR for two reasons. One, because a lot of the people making it were kind of TV people who, who instead of thinking what this needs is some audio, they thought it needs loads more video. So the end had these incredibly panoramic, immersive things with no audio. And secondly, for a technical reason, because when you're doing VR, the audio is very, very difficult. Because if you're scanning a room like this, filming it in VR, where do you film the audio? 
um, and, and, and how, do you, how do you film it so that you can, when you turn your head, you can hear it as well as see it. So a load of VR stuff in the early days was mono, it was silent or mono. So having you know, ha happily looked at the fact that we'd done this, um, ex these experiments that we're taking off, we decided to do some audio ones. And so and VR does attract a certain type of crackpot filmmaker. So this one is basically kind of a combination of a thing about bees from the bees' point of view and honey from the bees' point of view. And it's very strange. Um, and it's beautiful, beautiful audio. And um, it's a real technical challenge to, as to, 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 to film audio in a 360 way, which will then be viewed kind of from a free, view, free viewpoint. So audio VR feels like a contradiction in terms, but if you can think of it as a beyond stereoscopic, beyond binaural, beyond 22.2, the ability to make a radio drama which kind of moves depending on where your head is. And again, the kit was there for this 10 years ago, but it was so expensive. So uh, with, with relatively high end at the moment, Samsung's, you get the headset free. I mean free, it's not free, it's subsidised by the cost of the handset. But we're starting to see the price of these headsets come down. They're about £49 at the moment. We think that, I mean, the Google are giving a whole load of them away, these cardboard ones. I don't know if people have seen those that just strap onto your, your Android. Those viewers are free. Those are good enough to do something for your listeners which will blow their minds. And, and to, to record it, you can do it with basically three half-decent radio mics. Um, you, I mean, there are specialist kit you can do, but at the moment, the problem with this is, I say, improved editing tools. By that, I mean they're not totally hopeless. The editing, the stitching together of this audio is still really quite tricky, um, but that's why it's fun. Um, so, you know, immersive radio using this, this, this kit is, 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 you know, eminently doable, and it's something that... Um, Spotify and Pandora and iTunes and stuff, they can't touch that, you know. If we're trying to make more personalised, more immersive radio experiences, this is one way of doing it. It's not the only way by any means. It is still an experiment. I think it will still be relatively niche, but niche like stereo was niche for 30 years. Does that mean it will ever be as ubiquitous? No. But, you know, it's certainly something that, like I say, it makes people cry. So, um, second screen auto sync. So, there was a buzz about second screen some years ago. I don't know if it was the same here, but I went to a load of presentations from startups who were saying, now we can overlay porn ads over your BBC content. Yay. Um, you know, and for radio, what does second screen mean for radio? Mm. I see from the, um, the fantastic... Um, uh, demo space out there that's been operated showing the uh, DAB uh, restricted license multiplex that's been operated here. You know, a lot of those radios do have screens on them. Um, but uh, most radios don't have screens. Um, so what does second screen mean? Um, well, the service that we've built removes the need to produce um, uh, a tablet or a phone app per um, uh, application. It also allows us to build in um, using a simple uh, extension on, I think this is Chrome, um, where there's someone with a radio, we can deduce what they're listening to, we can then add, bookmark, and, and share that. So with a normal radio and with a commodity mobile phone, we've kind of built a companion device. Um, this was part of a large uh, EU project with, amongst others, the European Broadcasting Union, um, which means we can then control... Um, 
control radios control um, what people are listening to from a handset to the device if it's a smart device and if it's not a smart device it's just a relatively dumb medium wave or AM or FM tuner we can kind of work at what they're listening to and then interact with it here so it puts intelligence where it, it's needed and at relatively low cost so what you can imagine doing with that is interacting with the competition um, saying I'd like to hear more like this all the things that a lot of these second screen things have promised but with much cheaper and with much more flexibility um, automatic content analysis. So um, we work a lot with our colleagues in um, BBC Monitoring who are, are kind of the listening outpost for the BBC. They were set up during the Second World War to um, listen to Nazi broadcasts and deduce from them kind of what was, what was happening, what they call open source. They don't mean software, they mean it's, it's not a hidden, it's, it's a normal radio show that's listened to in... Um, um, in the People's Republic of China or North Korea or something and then they listen and they, 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 they kind of produce meaning from it from, from normal TV and radio output um, so we built a system which is initially for them but we're now using in a whole other places which is um, it just basically sucks in content really um, whether that's AV content, so radio content, TV content or textual content and then can deduce meaning from it so we can say so we're using it to predict what's going to be in the charts by not, not with access to what people are um, buying, but by what radio stations are playing and by what the buzz about them is. So that's, I talked to, you know, a couple of minutes ago about a very laudable goal about you know, listening to Nazis to kind of help win the Second World War. We're <laughs> using it for amongst other things, trying to work out what's in the pop charts. Um, but it has a whole load of utility. We can this system we can now point at a whole load of sources to say find some needles in these haystacks what's breaking news what stories that what stories are the BBC not covering that our competitors are and also what stories are English language um, stations not covering so going back to this the translation stuff earlier we can pipeline these together so we can bring in a load of content deduce that it is or isn't about Tusk or Bush or whoever pipe it through the translation thing and then come back and say this story is breaking and the BBC isn't anywhere near it. So I mean that's quite a large scale use of it but you could imagine using that to, um, um, to if you're, a, if you're a, a, a news organization or the news wing of a broadcaster to follow your competitors stories to see what they know that you don't. Um, and again this much of this is open source. Um, so following on from that, so speaker and music detection. So um, these here are um, voice fingerprints deduced from some audio. We've worked out with our tool that these are individual speaker names. We didn't know who they were. We crowdsourced the naming of them. Once we found one name, that speaker's voice, anywhere else in our archive, we were able to cascade through. So once we'd said, this is um, David Cameron, every other instance where David Cameron spoke, even when he spoke when he was a really young right-winger who was you know, on the up, even, even, even when his age, the, voice of his age the, the age of his voice had changed, but it was still, the fingerprint was still unique to our amazement. So p pointing this over... Um, uh, uh, you know your competitors you know have they put their DJ on the radio more recently with with a tool like this we can work that out we've also 
built something which does music detection on a, on a basic level that's just to kind of if we're editing something that's been TX we can just ch remove the music out of it semi-automatically again not perfectly we can just take whole chunks of the music away or we can flag up where where the the, the speakers talking over a bed of music and it makes it inaudible um, so we can do this the speaker detection we can do music detection and then from then on we can also do what music is playing so we are trying the BBC is trying to make a, a distinctive kind of series of radio networks we don't want to be like the competition you know what are we playing that they're that they're playing and you know are we playing too much of what they're playing but you could also use that to to um, aggressively target your competition to say right there they're, they're, they're breaking a load of new records every afternoon. They haven't announced this. They're not making a big deal of it. They're playing a load of new records. What are they playing? Where are they getting these records from? So automatic analysis at scale, giving meaning to kind of the, who's speaking and what they're playing. And a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about here, it's the scale that means that although it will never be as good as a human doing it, when you're trying to do either a large archive or if you're trying to do a huge sweep of either all the, all the competitors on the dial or even competitors from around the world, doing it at this sort of scale is impossible without thousands and thousands of people in a room. Um, so finally from this sort of run through is um, virtual studios. So the ability to, you know, we have a large uh, local radio estate in the UK, 70 stations, loads of them with uh, kind of offshoot stations, kind of sister stations and stuff, kind of things from the local councils. So there's at least 150 um, local radio stations in the UK and many more around the world. And a lot of the kit in those is both aging, unloved, mistreated, and not very well serviced by our engineering teams because it's either remote or you know, it's, 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 it's in the council chamber or something, it's quite hard for us to get to. A virtual studio where it's just an IP line, a laptop, and maybe a hardware mixer. So it's increasingly not even that, because some of the technologies I showed you about earlier, you can do that in software. So that it means that we can um, massively decrease cost, hugely increase reliability, give failover, um, and roll out new lines to a music festival with just an IP, just an IP line and a laptop. And it also means that when we make a change to the configuration, we can, probably to reluctant users because they're not any change, but we can roll out the, the, new, the new version in software kind of overnight. Um, and that gives us huge benefits when it comes to reliability and, um, uh, and also the, the, the ability to, to train person in one studio and it's exactly the same in the other. And so, you know, obviously software doesn't make hardware free, but it certainly brings the price down because... Uh, Increasingly, we could also virtualize what's happening on the laptop. The laptop itself isn't even running any software. It's just a display, and it's going back to a central studio that's kind of rendering the whole um, mixing desk in front of the person's eyes. So, you know, inclusion through that pretty whistle-stop tour through some of what we're doing. Um, the software and open standards have allowed us to have huge leaps in capability for the analysis and play out and, and for our listeners. Um, IP-only radio, as in people listening without FM or AM or DAB, like in, in, in bulk, is, for us, we think is a very long way away for the listener um, as, a, as a percentage of listening. So, you know, IP-only radio, for example, in cars is 
pretty tricky, even in really densely populated areas of the UK with pretty good um, 3 or 4G reception. Um, anywhere else, not yet. Um, but IP production is in use now and will only be growing, we think. Um, FM, DAB and AM for us is still the main bulk of listening and will stay so for some time. Um, we've seen growth in interesting ways to connect, so games consoles um, uh, being, being one surprise to, 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 to all of us, and set-top boxes as well. Um, but IP-only radios give a whole load of wonderful things that they can do, but for us it's still kind of almost yesterday's technology is still in, is, is still in, in, in use. So how do we make the content for that and how do we make the listening for that much more flexible? Um, for us, you know, especially when we read naysayers and doomsayers from mainly from America, where radio is undergoing what looks like an existential crisis, um, but and that's because it's never spoken to the nation, because the metro area and it's very segmented and so on. So for us, it's radio will stay relevant by being both personal and mainstream, but also niche, as well as broad brush. Um, the stuff that we're showing here, you know, it's five to ten years since we worked on this, a lot of it, but what we are seeing is the pace of change is increasing and the rollout, getting it in front of listeners and stuff is, 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 is much quicker. You know, and one of the things that we guard against and we're wary about, and so I can't speak for other broadcasters, but we see increasing listening in certain age groups and no replacement for those age groups. So on one hand, it's absolutely rosy because our, you know, fantastically cerebral late night radio arts show has got its best ever listeners. I mean, an incredible amount of listeners. But what we're seeing is, bluntly, as that age group begins to die, the people who aren't dying are listening more. That's quite a, not a great sell. Of people who are still alive, they're listening more. Um, so for us, building new ways, new personal ways of getting content radio to people, um, but as well as keeping it, as I say, mainstream and niche at the same time, which is a real challenge, but it is one of the things we like about radio, that it can be both. It can be both popular and populist, as well as kind of cerebral and groundbreaking and kind of personal. Okay, that was my things that are coming soon down the track. So has anyone got any questions? Okay, um, do you want the microphone? Do we have it? Yeah. Um, I just want you to expand on that last point about FM, DAB, and AM still being the bulk of listening, because there's always this argument uh, when uh, radio came along, it would end newspapers, TV would end radio, and all of that, and, and, and none of those tend to be true, but of course the change is very dramatic. Um, we had a, 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 a presentation yesterday saying about 75% of South African um, uh, the listeners to radio are getting it from radios. Mm -hmm. um, so you seem to be saying, although you know it's surprising that so many are not using radios anymore. Yep. Uh, but you're saying that for, in the long term, FM, DAB, and AM will still be the bulk, and 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 yet you're also saying that the younger people are using it less. So I wonder if you could expand on that. A bit. Yeah, there are two contradictory things there. So the projected by many, never R&D, the projected move, mass move from broadcast to IP 
didn't happen, hasn't happened yet, we don't see it happening soon. And there are a number of reasons for why that hasn't happened. The thing that always surprises us is why people want it to happen. Because the lovely thing about broadcast radio is that one or one million cost stays the same. Internet listening, like that, or even sometimes like that for cost. So moving people away from, from a, a, a cost-effective, known and, and pretty flexible way to an IP way with no reason was always struck us as quite curious. Um, so the people who are listening using broadcast, people who've diversified have already got that. They've got a games console or a set-top in one room. They've got an IP radio in another room, but they've still got five or six or seven. I mean, I've got a one-bedroom flat. I've got two rooms in that flat. I've got six radios in that, right? But people, that's the same in, in, in other people's homes. They have a number of radios which work perfectly fine. They will continue to listen to those and are listening more and more with those. That's the, the kind of the radio market, the 25 to 70-year-old. In the UK, this is radio, radio market. Um, I, I listened to a lot of pop radio as a kid. Um, kids still listen to pop radio. Um, they listen on a number of devices. They don't really see radio as old-fashioned in a way that we were expecting them to. Radio isn't seen as old-fashioned. A radio is something, I read this on, 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 on Twitter yesterday, um, a radio is something that has sound coming out of speakers. So that is a good way of summing up radio. It's not just broadcast, it's not just IP, it could include Spotify, but for us it's about a kind of a scheduled, scheduled show. Um, so, yeah, 75, roughly 75%, 67-75% are listening on, on, on radios. But the, the important thing is to get the habit of radio listening in, in young people on whatever device it is. And that is harder to break. Because when I was a kid, if you wanted to hear new records, you bought them, you went to a club, or you put the radio on. And if you're 13, you're not buying that many, and you're probably not going to clubs. So radio, radio, radio. If you're 13 now, you can hear new records in a whole series of ways. So the question is, will that translate into radio listening when they're 20, 25? It might not. It won't if radio mimics Spotify and Pandora. You know, there was a presentation yesterday about building personalities. You can't out-Spotify Spotify. Spotify. Um, if it's just literally giving people a choice and they can listen to whatever they want, why are they going to do it with you? Why aren't they going to do it with Spotify? So it, it's the question, you know, it is, are we building the habit of radio listening in young people? So with the things that I'm talking about there, with the more flexible ways of building radios, both radio devices, ways of listening, as well as the content we think we are. I just wanted to know whether you've experimented with binaural sound. Is yes. that an option? Yes, we have. Um, so uh, we've done a lot, over the years, we've done a lot of experiments with binaural. We actually found one we did in... 1972 the other day like actually found the tape um, and the, the diagram to produce the kit to listen to it on um, yes we have um, uh, we have done uh, some stuff from some of the proms with binaural and again why why is that easier than it used to be like I say in the 70s t to listen you needed the following expensive kit and blah now half decent headphones laptop with a plug-in off you go um, we, ha we have done, we're not seeing a huge appetite from listeners, I have to say. Um, it, it is great. It is great. It, it, it's just, it's quite a niche. It's quite a niche area. 
and it also demands certain types of um, um, output. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. One of the big hitters on, on, in the West End at the moment is a play called The Encounter by Complicity. I don't know if you heard about it. No. But, but it's using binaural sound. Interesting that an audience wow. would come to see a play wow, yeah, and fit a headset. Yep. Um, and they, they streamed that. Um, it was free for a week. Okay. It was a fantastic experience. But I, I guess, as you said, it's quite niche. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the pr we never like predicting. I notice almost everything I've showed you has been stuff that has, has happened. We don't like predicting in R&D because we're always wrong. But um, I think the techniques might see fruition in virtual reality. So we're talking to the Royal Opera House about doing uh, uh, an opera in virtual reality where obviously the audio will become incredibly important and the positions of the audio will become incredibly important. I mean, I think one of the problems with binaural and various other exciting kind of 22.2 was a lot of them demanded a special listening room and like a whole lot of kit and a real, like people that would tick hobbies that said hi-fi, you know? I mean, if you tick a box that says your hobby's hi-fi, you're not a normal listener for us. Um, so it was quite a lot of work needed at every end for, for yes, a technological breakthrough, but not much more than that. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you for your time.